What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. Wednesday, June 22nd, 2016, from Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. MetLife, gigantic insurance company, MetLife, deemed too big to fail by a government agency, but then overturned in court. MetLife is reportedly considering a move that will reverberate in markets and possibly pocketbooks everywhere. They're thinking of dropping Snoopy as their marketing mascot. MetLife pays $12 million a year. It's been using Snoopy since 1985, but the New York Post reports that its marketing chief is leaning against the continued use of Snoopy. Of course, the Post in that story also misreported what company owns the rights to Snoopy, and also they're the New York Post. But still, big news in the world of Minnesota Beagle-based marketing. You know, I never understood this. I never understood how anyone could make a decision about what insurance to buy, how to ensure the health of you and your family via the presence of a cartoon dog. Well, you know, son, picking the right insurer who will treat you as a person and value your welfare as much as your business, that's an important priority for this family. But they got the cartoon dog. I like when he flies through the air on an aeroplane. But MetLife does not take this decision or Snoopy lightly. Oh no, I came across this. These, this right here. This is MetLife's internal guidelines for Snoopy usage. I kid you not. This is a document called Snoopy as brand icon. I will read you some of what they say. Please note that Snoopy need not appear only in the ambassador Snoopy pose, which is Snoopy with his arms outstretched, smiling and dancing happily. Snoopy may appear alone or with other Peanuts characters in according with the guidelines presented here. And oh, there are lots of guidelines. To know for sure, if you get approval, there is a Snoopy approval request form, which they swear will be returned in five to seven business days. Here are some things that you shouldn't do with Snoopy. Do not add an airbrushed tint or other shading to Snoopy or alter his appearance. Do not alter the line quality of Snoopy. Do not substitute another pose for the desired Snoopy pose in the brand identity bar. Here's a good one. Do not use Snoopy to represent a MetLife employee or agent. And to illustrate this, they have Snoopy with a briefcase. Hi, no. Yes, uh, I'd like to sell you some MetLife. Uh, My name actually is Snoopy. Uh, Desmond W. Snoopy. And then they get really, really technical. And they talk about how much space needs to be around Snoopy. And they have a graphic, like a grid over Snoopy with different different measurements. And they say the minimum clear space for Snoopy is Y, where Y equals the height of Snoopy's foot. And then later in the document... <laughs> They say the white bottom of Snoopy's feet should be aligned with the bottom curve of the MetLife E. And they go on to say Snoopy should never be closer to the MetLife logo than 2X, where X is the height of the MetLife M. This is Snoopy algebra. This is complex stuff. And among the other do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts, lots of don'ts about Snoopy and the Peanuts gang, Snoopy cannot speak. 
i.e. no bubbles with words. Characters may not be used in poses contrary to their established personalities or family associations, like Schroeder playing the sitar, maybe Peppermint Patty in evening wear, Charlie Brown doing the nay-nay. Here's one. Snoopy cannot interact with himself. There is only one Snoopy. Implied, Snoopy cannot lick himself. And here's a good one. Do not depict the characters in a dangerous situation that could result in death. Yes, thank you, Snoopy as brand icon marketing materials. I will leave you with the very last line of these materials. All uses of Snoopy and other Peanuts characters must be submitted for approval by the MetLife Advertising Department and Peanuts Worldwide following the procedure indicated on the MetLife Snoopy approval flowchart. On the show today, I will spiel about North Korea and Donald Trump. But first, if you build it, they will come. Well, that wasn't the exact order. Alonzo Bowden and Ali Ward did build it on their TV show, and then they came and talked to me. So the first day of the 2012 Republican National Convention, they came out with a theme. We built that. The Romney campaign never recovered. But there is something inherent in just the building of things, even when it's not being wielded for political gain. And there is a new show by, what a pair, Alonzo Bowden and Ali Ward. They have a show called How to Build dot dot dot, an ellipsis. Everything, how to build everything, and we kind of do mean everything. Hello, Ali. Hello, Alonzo. How are you guys? Great, Mike. How are you? I'm well. So, Alonzo, I know you from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I've heard you on Adam Carolla a lot, yes, and I know about yes. your background. You went, was it an aviation high yeah, school? You yeah, learned to, to build here airplanes? Here in New York. I went to aviation high school in Long Island City. That's the one. I drive, by the way, if you want to, the good route to the 59th Street Bridge, yes, you don't you go on it. Van Damme. You know it. You go on <laughs> maybe 33rd. 33rd Street, and you're rewarded. You know you've gone in the right direction because there's a three airplanes, right? Yeah. Right yeah. in the parking lot of aviation. Yeah, we literally had airplanes at the school, and I learned to build aircraft. I was hired by Lockheed back in 1980. Yes, I'm that old. <laughs> and I moved to L.A., and I did that for 10 years, and then I started training, and I had fun making them laugh, and I shifted into comedy, and lo and behold, this show comes up, How to Build Everything, and a couple of the everythings were aircraft. Really? And they, they literally called me. They said, hey, you know how to build airplanes? And I was like, as a matter of fact, I do. And and we got to talk about that. We got to talk about building the Apache helicopter, which is fascinating. But I also got to do another love of mine is motorcycles. Mm. And we do. I find that most people who build airplanes, they li like motorcycles. Yeah, also. it's a it's a matter of liking everything mechanical. Yes. yes. So we, I got to do the episode on building super bikes, which are you know racing motorcycles. And this show, it literally is how to build everything. Like there are some things that I knew about. Then other things I had no idea how to build, but in doing the show, you learn. You're like, wow. So going to aviation high school and working for 10 years, it never dampened your love of mechanics? Or was it the case that, you know, eight years into working on airplanes or a little over that specific uh, aspect of well, building? Well, I got to work on some really cool stuff. Like the first aircraft I worked on was the stealth fighter, yeah. which was used in the first Gulf War. And they weren't sure it would really work. When well, you were no, building. they knew it would work. But when I worked on it for the first eight years, 
it was all top secret. Yeah. Like, we literally couldn't tell anyone. Now, if you're old enough to remember, there was a movie called Firefox mm-hmm. with Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. And, and a good it, video game based on and, it, too. Yeah. <laughs> and in the movie, he had this secret war plane, and it was, like, invisible to radar. It could project false images, this and that. And we're sitting there like, yeah, we can do that. Like, we couldn't tell anybody, like, yeah, that's real. Like, we're building the plane that does yeah. everything you yeah. see. In the, yeah, this is real. Then I worked on private jets for the unbelievably rich. And these are the people who buy a 727, and we convert it to your private plane. And so I got to work on Malcolm Forbes' plane where he keeps a Corvette and two Harleys in the cargo bay. So when he'd land, he'd have his toys. He's a gearhead so, too. Right. Yeah, I got yeah, to, yeah. to work on that. And then I got to do recovery and modification. Like we did a job here at JFK where a plane went off the runway and we basically pulled it out of the water and rebuilt it there. So once you've done all of that, the idea of working on a plane at night and you just have to simply change a tire, it's like, yeah, it's kind of boring. Like, <laughs> can you crash it first and make it interesting? So when I left the business, I felt I had done everything interesting. You're like, unless there's a leather-clad billionaire biking out of the back of this <laughs> thing, I'm just not getting my high. Now, Ali, what's your mechanical background? Tell me you went to submarine high school. Uh, no, 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 no. Just helicopter high school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, uh, yeah and, then I, and then I taught submarine college. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, I heard that went under. Oh. What are you talking about? Uh, That was out of the scope of my knowledge. Oh, okay. Um, No, I I don't have necessarily mechanical background, but I studied uh, science all through high school and college, and then I studied film and science, and so I kind of always wanted to go into educational TV. And then... Boom, here I am. But I also volunteer at a at a natural history museum, and I'm, I'm really obsessed with bugs and skunks. Which and section of the natural history museum? In the live bug section. Yes. <laughs> I hear the entomologists are the craziest ones. Oh, I have a friend. Yes. In fact, she comes on the show. She's a bear expert, and she's like, I'll give your kids a tour, but just so they know, the bug guys are really weird. The weirdest. <laughs> the weirdest. Because to be able to connect with a bunch of tiny, thick-skinned, thick-shelled robots is yeah. you've got to be a certain kind of person. Is it true, this is the cliche, maybe you would know more than anyone that structurally bees aren't supposed to fly. Do you know about this? You know, Claim? and they say that about bumblebees too, the yeah. weight the weight ratio to the wings. Yeah, I've heard that. We did not talk about bumblebees and how to build everything. That would be cool if you built a bumblebee. Yeah, that would be actually very awesome. If That's we did. season two, playing God. Yeah, right. So you're a science communicator. Communicator. What is that? Does that mean the union of teachers won't allow you to say that? Or No, it's actually – it's funny because uh, when they were coming up the lower third, the Chiron, they went yeah. back and forth. They're like, what do we call people who are in entertainment but in educational entertainment? And it was back and forth like – because I also do like a comedy podcast and I work for – you know, for on cooking shows as well. And so it went back and forth and science communicator is a, kind of a, now – a pretty accepted term for people who like doing educational things in general. How much of your comedy, I'm going to ask you both this, how much of your comedy do you say, I don't want to just get a laugh, I would like to inform? I think a lot of it. I think that's part of comedy is to, is trying to be truthful about something. I think that's always, I mean. Are I, you trying to inform about, you know, the Mark Maron ideal exposing your soul and demons? Or are you trying to get a point across about the natural world, the, the world we live in, et cetera? You know, I think, you know, I have a, a comedy podcast, Slumber Party with Ali and Georgia, and we always start every episode with one thing we learned each week. And it's become this joke that 
almost every time we open the show, I'm like, okay, I have two things. One is a bug fact, and it's usually about like <laughs> about bug mating or something or something I learned about snakes. And so there's a lot of humor in science in general because so much of it is unbelievable and that inspires such wonder and curiosity. And it's just it makes you feel kind of small and stupid, which is in a wonderful way. So I, I think joking about science is is for me, a very comfortable place. Yeah. And also bugs and the natural world don't care. Like they don't care. No. And so they'll be outrageous and eat their young or do something that we think is disgusting. And the mollusk will be like, I'm just mollusking. Yeah. Yeah. Just living my life, doing what I do. I think gossiping about, gossiping about science in general is like such a safe space because (laughs) you can probably not offend too many people. Right. But then there, there are areas I've been into this. Like we did a whole podcast about duck rape and it got political. Like, do you call it rape? I, I, listen, I'm not going to get into the duck rape yeah, issue because the last time I did, oh, it was messy. <laughs> I, You know, I love if I can make you laugh and teach you something, say something or give you a different point of view. I mean, so many. And, and the beautiful thing about science is science is absolutes. Like there's very few things in life that you're not. This is the way it is. Yeah. But scientists, they're like, well, no, there's no opinion. I don't get into it a lot in my comedy because I know too much about it. Mm-hmm. And then, then it would confuse people because I don't know how to look at it on the simple level. I'm like, wow, this is – and then suddenly the audience is looking at you like, yeah, you lost us, you know. Although the, in general, yes, comedy is – you pointed out something that I never realized or you made something relatable. So it's all about connection. But there is that way to demonstrate some sort of virtuosity that only Almost loses the audience, yet you know it's funny. I mean, we talked about Corolla before, and on his show, he'll just go into something about double reinforced rebar or some building thing, and it's in the specificity, which I don't even get that I find hysterical. Oh, ab- absolutely. The fact that the way things work can be very funny. Like I, like I was joking about how a plane flies, yeah. and, and I can go into low pressure and Bernelli's principle and a design of a wing, which is a curved surface. The air moves over the curved surface faster, which creates low pressure, which lifts the wing and consequently lifts the aircraft. Or you could put a really big engine on it and aim it up. You know, like that's a rocket. A rocket is a really big engine that's aimed up and it flies. And and yeah, there's aerodynamics involved, but you know why it flies? Because it's got a huge engine, you know, and, and that's what you find. There was a guy who strapped a jet engine onto a car to see what would happen. And there's actually a mark on the side of the cliff. <gasps> of what happened when he became airborne because he did not realize that, hey, once you're airborne, your brakes don't work. And, uh, yeah, it was that, that's how we yeah. lost him. You know, Darwin, <laughs> you know, we've, we've all seen Dar- the Darwin <laughs> principle in action, and it does. That is science. It's like, yeah, it works. Yeah, you know? when they say air brakes, that's not what they mean. Yeah. Although if, like Coyote, he had drawn the tunnel in the side well, of the mountain see, first. He didn't, right. have, he didn't have the portable hole. He should have had a portable <laughs> hole. Yes. He yeah. didn't have the reverse in the middle of the air, realize what you've done, run back no. in air to the cliff. That, perhaps, that. perhaps, A, he looked down, or B, he didn't have the bongos. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that yeah. helps. He didn't have the umbrella. He wasn't at all prepared. This is my knowledge of science. <laughs> but I will say there I will say that there's something about science where you think of it these really binary like right wrong like absolute terms like you were saying but there the hidden wonderful backstage of science is how much failure is involved to get to those conclusions and I think that is what is funny to, about science to me is is how many experiments have to fail and how many notions have to be disproven before you get to these absolutes and I think that there's something about taking 
something so respected and really exposing the humanity of it and the mistakes that like make science so lovable to me is just how silly and ridiculous a lot of it has been. Well, I think there are some things that very few of us understand, things in astrophysics, a black hole. Yes, we would expect that to have different explanations, but Chuck Klosterman was in. He wrote a book about how I think it's called Everything You Think Is Wrong, and he started with a very basic principle. All right, well, let's talk about something that we know is right, gravity. And the astrophysicists he was talking to said, no, there's so much about gravity that A, we don't know, that B, we're going to be wrong about. Right, and and, and that happens with science. You know, over time, science does learn things. I mean, you, you... you look back, there was a time when the earth was flat. Yeah. I think the other great thing about science is when you can show people how it works in their life. In other words, so many things on your car were on an airplane, you know, anti-lock brakes or or your navigation system like that used to be the pilot was he plotted navigation and stuff like that. And now you just do it in your dashboard like where's the nearest Starbucks Boom. Yeah. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. They just invented this. Yeah, in 1941. They've got been a, perfecting it ever since. I got another one for you. Cup holders. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> they didn't start out in cars. And, and I will tell you that the, the thing I love about cup you know who really had a hard time with the cup holders? Who's that? Germans. Yeah. Porsche was a car designed for drivers. And they didn't understand that Americans had to have a cup holder. They were like, this is the greatest sports car on earth, but they won't buy it unless we put a cup holder. And it's like not just a cup holder, a cup holder big enough for a big gulp. (laughs) We're not sipping. We're not sipping here in the United States of America. If we can't hold a 64-ounce cup— I can't buy your little fancy car. That makes me feel better about my 1993 Subaru I once had. Didn't have cup holders. But so I think it's the same thing. My 93 Subaru and a Porsche pretty much on the same they car are, performance. They are just about equal unless you drive them. But about how to build everything. Are there Alonzo things and Alley things? Well, in the sense that we narrated different segments. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah there are some segments so I do. So what's a natural some, one? You're going to do the aviation. Right. I do yep. the, the aircraft, the Apache helicopter, like I said, the super bikes, things like that, and alley. Right. Um, I narrated a cruise ship, which I have been on a cruise ship yeah. and have a lot of feelings about it. Was it a supposedly fun thing you'll never do again? Thank you for articulating my feelings. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> David Foster Wallace hat tip, but yes. <laughs> um, and uh, and also the pipe organ, which for someone who was raised Catholic, that made a lot of sense to me. But but yeah, learning the mechanics of everything, you might get a subject and say, okay, I, I know kind of how that works. But then really diving in and doing the research and understanding it from like a, just the minutiae is so fascinating. And then to try and explain that to people in a way that it makes sense where, you know, you could conceivably build a pipe organ at home. Yes. Huge. And so my last question evokes the name of an indie band. We were promised jetpacks. I know there's a jetpack episode. I haven't yes. seen it. You did jetpacks? I flew one of the jetpacks that uses water. Yeah. It uses high pressure. But you're a big man. Water. Yeah. You're what, 6'4? Six, 6'3. Six, yeah. yeah. And substantial. Yeah. Yes. So and that would seem to be antithetical to it the workings of a jetpack. No, it actually worked. It was fascinating. You know why we couldn't fly jetpacks? Because we'd be crashing into each other and burning each other up. Yeah. You know they don't what I mean? Sell like, well. yeah, it, yeah, it's just, it's one of those things like, oh, it's not, flying cars sound like a good idea, but we really haven't mastered them on the ground. Other things they design, like people like, well, how come we don't have this? Well, we can do it, but it's going to cost a million dollars. Yes. You know, so you, you, you could have it. Like right now, what's going on with the Tesla? You have this brilliant electric car. 
but it does cost about a hundred grand. So the <laughs> so the average person isn't buying one yet. Now in the future, volume will bring the price down, and there will come a time when they're you know twenty thirty thousand dollars. Then people will buy them. But right now, it's like yeah, we have the technology, but you don't. The thing about the thing about the high price tag, though, it does signal just how environmentally conscious you are to your neighbors. I right. mean, it, it does serve a great signaling purpose. Well, yeah, and and you know, and you also have the ego thing. Like, I don't know how it is here in New York, but in L.A., if like in certain, like if you're a studio executive, you have to drive a Tesla or the Prius. You know, if you're young, like if you're not driving a Prius, like what are you doing? Like that's the difference between Ali and I. Ali's. Saving the planet. She I drive a she Prius. Ha- See, of course, <laughs> she-, she does. And I'm like, yeah, I'll drive a Prius when they put a V8 in it. So. <laughs> Alonzo actually drives a stealth bomber. <laughs> right. He drives the Apache helicopter when the traffic is hard. <laughs> Alonzo Bowden and Ali Ward are the team behind How to Build Everything. Science Channel. Which is which is on the Science Channel. And Wednesday we nights you- at 10. Wednesdays at 10, but, you know, it's an on-demand world. So just... You check it out on Just your Just learn how to build exactly. everything. Exactly. <laughs> build build your own uh, smart TV. Alonzo and Ali, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Mike. Thank this you. was great. And now the spiel. That's some type of dong. Media reporting that North Korea fired two missiles early Wednesday morning. Although North Korea's HR department doesn't say fired, they say the missiles in North Korea parted ways. But you know, these tests, which were the fifth and sixth firing of missiles, all of which have resulted in missiles crashing into the sea. The the sixth test, it crashed a little bit further than test one through five. Anyway, they have put me in the mind of nothing so much as the Trump phenomenon. I think I know why. Because everything reminds me of the Trump phenomenon. It is such a compelling phenomenon. And it's not just because that Trump has fascistic tendencies and North Korea is a fascist state. It's not because of Trump's whole, you're fired, catchphrase and the firing off of missiles. And yes, Trump puts his brand on all the buildings and he believes in cults of personality and he murdered his uncle or whatever fired Corey Lewandowski. He's also constantly being rebuked by the Washington establishment. We've already had a condemnation from Washington. The State Department said that they strongly condemn this. Actually, wait, that was North Korea for their missile launch. But there's a real reason that North Korean missile launches and Donald Trump remind me of each other. They're dangerous. They're definitely dangerous. Obviously quite dangerous. They represent a horrifying potential. But I just have a hard time imagining that the potential will ever be real. They bumble their way out of the terror part of my mind, the amygdala, and they they lodge themselves in the right frontal lobe where all the ridiculous stuff resides. Monkeys, fat men falling down, squirts. Now everyone says, I'm wrong. They say, don't sleep on Trump. Don't sleep on the North Koreans. Don't sleep on all the terrorists. Don't sleep on all the possible terrorists in the world. Fine, fine. Don't sleep. But I'd rather sleep than stay up at night being scared of potential. I mean, with North Korea, they're not even really getting close. The estimated range could be up to 4,000 kilometers, which uh, could put uh, the U.S. military base uh, in Guam in North Korea's sights. Now, of course, 400 kilometers is nowhere near that, but it does appear to be further uh, than we have seen before. Wow. Almost 10% of the way to Guam. My God. Next thing you'll know, they'll be 
20% of the way to Guam. Then it'll be up to 43% of the way to Guam. There's almost not enough time for everyone on Guam to pick up everything and leave Guam. I mean, nothing scares Americans more than the possibility of an unreliable weapon traversing a distance they don't actually really understand to strike a protectorate they've not even heard of. And if the Guam thing doesn't drive it home, next thing, these missiles will be on the doorstep of the Mariana Islands, both the uninhabited and inhabited ones, presumably. So it's just like Trump. Yes, he might strike or he might drop into the Sea of Japan or thousands of miles of Pacific Oceans. Sure, I acknowledge Donald Trump could wreck things if his payload deploys, but that is looking less and less likely. Look, in the 70s, a piece of Skylab could have fallen on John Wayne Gacy, but I don't think that would have been law enforcement's best tool in halting him. I know, I know, we are in the era of sage grouses. They're saying that I smugly dismiss these threats. It's not smugness, it's self-preservation. Worrying about calamitous things that probably aren't going to happen, that are also out of your control, it's not a really good use for your time, especially when there are plenty of calamitous things that you can prevent that will happen if you don't actively try to prevent them. Yeah, sorry, Doc, I didn't check out that lump on my neck. I was too paralyzed worrying about Trump and the Typo Dong 2 missile. Yeah. That's the name of the missile. I mean, North Korea can't even make a toaster or coffee pot that doesn't catch on fire. Here, listen to Reuters Korea correspondent, Jumin Park. So experts are saying North Korean missile engineers are under some kind of political pressure to show the leader some good results. At the same time, missile experts told me that it is easier for North Korea to launch another missile than to run a computer simulation because it may have less computer analysis Let's think about this. The reason they keep launching missiles is that a computer that simulates a missile launch eludes them. But guess what you need to successfully launch a missile? Computers. So unless North Korea is investing in giant catapult technology, the kind that can be blueprinted freehand, I am not going to lose any sleep over the fate of Guam. And I'll similarly contextualize Donald Trump, even though I acknowledge the fate of the nation, including its mighty protector at Guam, hangs in the balance. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson, just producer, got into a number of good colleges, but decided to enroll based on which one had the full and unequivocal backing of Marmaduke. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, decided to have his intestinal blockage corrected in a lengthy surgery based on the fact that the anesthesiologist resembled Snagglepuss. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network, and he reminds you to put all your retirement savings in the only mutual fund endorsed by Scooby-Doo and all the gang. The gist. You know, I don't really speak about it that much, but when I am dead and when I'm gone, I hope you remember me. I hope you occasionally put fresh flowers on my grave in the only cemetery endorsed by Roadrunner. And I'll meep meep you on the other side. Meep meep. Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening.